my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. At an age of eight, my father abandoned my mother and my sister and brother and I. He had just bought into a restaurant in Jersey City. There I watched my mother, who had been the person who walked me to school and made lunch for me, all of a sudden was thrown into the position of having to be a business person and run this restaurant. She had no experience. I'm like eight years old. I'm listening to her call vendors, and she would say something like, the accountant's coming in tomorrow to pay bills. I want you to knock 10% off your bill. And you can hear on the other side saying, why would we do that? And she said, well, your invoice could be on the top of the pile or it could be on the bottom of the pile. So that's your choice. And I watched what I can only call now moxie. When I did this negotiating for discs, I was ruthless. And that's who was sitting on my shoulder. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to another of our at-home episodes of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
Today we have as our guest a great friend, incredible marketer, and a great storyteller. So get ready for some useful lessons and insights. She's the person responsible for that huge marketing success of AOL in the 1990s, taking AOL from a few hundred thousand subscribers to over 30 million. And if you wonder who was behind the carpet bombing of AOL disk back then, well, here's your culprit, Jan Brandt, the former vice chair and CMO of America Online. Jan was born in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was the home of cool. She grew up in New Jersey, had a really interesting career in marketing with a particular unique skill set in direct marketing. And to prove it, she has won numerous awards, received a lot of recognition in almost every possible forum. She loves dogs, travel, and people, and she has a wicked sense of humor. Jan, welcome. Well, thank you, Bob. Before we dig into all the stories and your lessons, I want to do a little feature we call you in 60 seconds. You ready? Yep. Do you prefer sunrise or sunset? Sunset. California or Virginia? Mm, California. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or autumn? Spring. Omaha steaks or Kansas City steaks? Omaha steaks, 100%. <laughs> AIM or AOL chat rooms? AOL chat rooms. Cats or dogs? Dogs. You've got mail or sleepless in Seattle? You've got mail. Dial-up or broadband? Broadband. Okay. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Ron Klain. First AOL screen name? Private dancer. Childhood hero? The Lone Ranger. First job? Copywriter. Favorite magazine? Parenting. Favorite city? Paris. Guilty pleasure? Watching movies all night long. And who would play you in a movie? Barbara Streisand. All right, let's get going. Let's start with your most enduring legacy. AOL, floppy disk, and then CDs everywhere. Mailboxes, computer boxes, newspaper inserts, even frozen steaks. You joined AOL in 1993, near its beginning, and a few years before I joined. If I remember correctly, AOL just had a couple hundred thousand subs back then, but Steve Case and the management group had a very big vision. Can you describe that moment and how you pivoted to mass marketing? I think I was brought on to see how fast and how far we could grow the service. I don't think we ever expected it to be quite as fast as it was, but that was my mission. I was brought in specifically to grow the business. It was really an interesting point in time because people didn't have home computers very much. The penetration was fairly low. Mostly people were familiar with computers in the workplace. They were starting to migrate to the home. Those computers that people had at home they didn't have modems. So a person actually had to have a computer and a modem in order to use the service. The first program started with a direct mail test that I did, mailing the disks out. It was a very, very expensive proposition and it was one that people thought was kind of a crazy thing to do because it was so expensive. A package in the mail directed or targeted to someone at that time probably was 35 cents a piece. The disc alone was $1.19, so putting it in the package in the mail probably cost us $1.75 each. But I felt that the only way that we could possibly describe the service to someone was to let them try it themselves. It's really hard to imagine now and saying to someone, well, you're going to be talking on your screen. You're going to be 
typing and someone else is going to see what you're writing. We didn't have screen sharing then. People didn't have computers. They thought you were crazy. They would say, well, why don't you just pick up a phone and call the person? And so it was impossible to really describe the service and do it any justice. We sent that mailing out to maybe 12 lists. We needed about a three to 500% response difference in order to make it work. And we got that and more. So we were off to the races at that point. When you took over, though, I'm going to go back just a little bit. The view was that the only possible audience for this were sort of computer geeks. What was it that caused you and Steve and whoever else made this decision that, yeah, you know, all these people that don't even have a computer yet or barely have a computer and certainly don't know how to operate it, are going to be the target market, and that's how we're going to be big. For me, I always have to look at any marketing endeavor and put myself in the position of the customer. One of my hidden talents is that I have a capacity for imagining that I'm the customer. And when Steve and I were first talking, he gave me a disk. I happened to have a Mac computer at the time, and still do, and I started using the service. It was amazing. All of a sudden, I have all of these friends that live in my computer. And at that point, there weren't many customers. We may have had three chat rooms open in the range of 100 or fewer people on it. And I could see what was happening there. I could see the connections that were being made. And to me, it was always about community. And it was always about connecting people, whether it was through email or later instant messenger or shared interests. I really felt that that was at the core of it. And I felt the tug. I felt and could understand what people, once they started using it, would get out of it. Our society was becoming more and more fragmented, more and more distant. There was a lot of upward mobility. There was a lot of geographic mobility. And to me, the secret sauce was the ability of AOL to connect people. I didn't know it was going to be 34 million paid subscribers, but I had every confidence that we were going to be able to reach larger and larger numbers. So now I see why you started it, why you decided to take that risk. You've pushed out this very expensive direct marketing. So what were the early results? Generally, for a typical direct marketing package, you would expect a 1% to 3% response. You know, 3% would be on the higher level. And this was a test. So I was picking things that I thought might work, but I had no history. The results of that first test, which was, I think, about 100 or 120,000 pieces, was 12%. Within that 12%, because that's an average, there were lists that were pulling 20%. I had never before, never since, ever seen anything like that. And keep in mind that this isn't just taking a free offer or a trial. It was a trial offer. But that the person had to take their credit card, give the credit card information, put the credit card information into a computer and send it out into cyberspace and they would be billed unless they canceled. It was staggering. It's clear it's a success, and I know you went on the drive cost down ridiculously low. At one point, I think you had more CDs in production for AOL than existed anywhere else in the world. But every time a competitor would do an offer, you did this very interesting thing, is you would replicate the offer with the AOL name on it and test it to see if it was better than what you were doing. 
Why on earth do you think a prodigy and CompuServe in the early days and MSN later didn't do that to AOL? What used to keep me up at night is coming into the office in the morning and seeing that Prodigy or CompuServe or Microsoft had copied what we were doing, just copied it. I can give you an idea of why some people didn't do this. A co-worker, Ted Leonsis, did a lot of public speaking. Someone either from Prodigy or CompuServe went up to Ted and said, what the hell is going on in your company? That marketing person is spending so much money, you guys are nuts. Ted just shook his head. When he came back to report that to me, I said, now here's what you say to them next time, that you've been trying to get that dumb broad fired for you know the last two years, and it's driving you crazy, and you can't believe that she's blowing that much money out, because I just didn't want them to know how well it was working. And here's the error that they were all making, that they didn't understand the math. Even though these were smart people, there is this fixation that people have on what something costs. But the equation on an acquisition cost, which is what really matters, is the cost relative to the number of people that you bring in. If I spend five times as much, but I bring in 20 times as many customers, it's in my favor. So the cost is clearly the hurdle. And I think you're right. I see it today, and I've seen it everywhere in my career, too. They don't focus on value. They focus on cost. You found some other truisms, too. You found out that the mention of any price always depressed results, no matter how good the price was. Yet every competitor kept talking about their price. What else did you consistently find, truths that others clearly did not see? I initiated a cancel-save program where rather than just processing a cancellation as other services were doing, we trained reps to find out why the person actually got onto the service to begin with. What were you looking for? What inspired you? Oh, I see your last name sounds Greek. Is that true? Are you of Greek heritage? Oh, yes. Well, we have a whole section about the Greek islands online, or we have a whole travel section, or we have a whole history section. Oh, you wanted to work with your child. Here's the encyclopedia. Part of it was never taking no for an answer. And another truism in the early stages which was very counterintuitive, again, to people who just weren't paying attention or weren't analyzing it. People would say, why are you sending out so many disks? We actually built databases, you know, probably not as an exacting way as we would have the capability to do now, but back then, where we knew how many disks that we were sending out to people. Now, we couldn't track what they were finding in Barnes & Noble or what they were finding at their gas station, but in terms of the actual mail... We knew that in certain lists, on average, we got response after they had received four efforts. We were actually tracking that. By the end of the 90s, AOL had half the traffic of the Internet in the U.S. going through AOL. We bought CompuServe. Prodigy was left by the wayside. MSN couldn't dent AOL. Why didn't any of the other services catch on that the key variable was easy? convenience. I went to the mat a number of times where they wanted to put it on two discs. And I remember having knockdown drag out fights saying, no, it has to be easy. It has to be simple. Likewise, I was under a lot of pressure to go from floppy disks to CDs because CDs would fix that problem. And I knew that. But my customers didn't have CDs. 
I didn't want to switch to CDs when 20% of our customers had a disk drive. The CD drive was an external add-on. You may have been with me on this meeting, but I was out with Steve Jobs right after he returned to Apple. And he was getting ready to tell me about this new thing he had called the iMac. And his innovation was, he said, I believe the computer is part of the Internet, and I'm going to build the modem into a computer. Today it looks like, huh? But back then it was such a step forward. He understood easy. Why do you think all these other smart people at these companies, a lot of resources, didn't hit on easy? Everybody else had more, they had better, they had this, but nobody had easy except us. I can't explain that other than I really think that you really have to live and breathe a customer in order to really get it. I want to talk some about the walled garden, the early view of the Internet, but first I want to go to early Jan. You were born in Brooklyn, moved to New Jersey, I think when you were about eight. There's this wonderful story and very telling about you, about a five-year-old Jan who wanted a library card. Can you repeat that story? Gosh, how do you know that story? I know everything. Wow. So my mother, who at that time was a stay-at-home mother, she was an avid, and everyone in my family were avid, avid readers. Newspapers, books, fiction, nonfiction, just voracious readers. And she would take me to the library, and on her library card, she was able to get four adult books and two children's books. And I would be with her, and I said, I want four books, I don't want two books. Because <laughs> I'd have to wait a whole week in order to get other ones. And so we went to the librarian and asked her to get a library card for me. And so she asked me to sign my name. And so, of course, I signed it in print, which, you know, block letters, whatever they were. And she said, no, we can't allow that. We have to have your name in script. And my mother had to explain to me what script was. And after arguing with the librarian, we went home. And my father took a piece of paper and he drew out my name several times, and he said, just sit here and trace. And so for a whole week, I traced my name over and over and over and over again. I must have traced it 10,000 times. And the following week, we went back to the library. I signed the card and got my own library card. <laughs> well, I've seen you repeat that lesson many times in your career. So this world you grew up in, the 50s, 60s, Tell us a little bit about the world as you saw it then and how it affected you. We didn't have any money. We were poor. I mean, we were what they used to call back then working class. I, you know, I grew up with two parents, and then my father, at an age of eight, abandoned my mother and my sister and brother and I. He had just bought into a restaurant in Jersey City. We ended up moving pretty quickly to Jersey City. There I watched my mother, who had been the person who walked me to school and made lunch for me and played catch with me while I watched baseball games on TV, all of a sudden was thrown into the position of having to be a business person and run this restaurant. She had no experience. This was a restaurant that was open 24-7 in a busy business area. She had an office that was in the basement and kind of smelled. I would sit there, I'd open up one of the drawers of the file cabinet and lean on it while she'd be on the phone or doing the payroll, or doing something like that. I'm like eight years old, or nine years old. I'm listening to her call vendors, and she would say something like, the accountant's coming in tomorrow to pay bills. I want you to 
knock 10% off your bill. And you can hear on the other side saying, why would we do that? And she said, well, your invoice could be on the top of the pile or it could be on the bottom of the pile. So that's your choice. And I watched what I can only call now moxie. When I did this negotiating for discs, I was ruthless. And that's who was sitting on my shoulder. Because my view was, okay, so if they say no, they say no. No one is ever going to stop me from coming back and saying, okay, you're right, you know, I'll take that higher price. It wasn't about my ego. People get into a negotiation and it becomes a lot about their ego. And to me, it was always about the company. I remember, Jan, times that we really had to dig deep to hit our numbers. And you would say, you know, I think I can get a little more out of this vendor. And you always went to that well. And you know what? There always was a little more. So that was a great childhood lesson. We all benefited from it. It worked with you. Let's move up a little bit. You went to Boston University School of Communications. You worked for Xerox. You got your MBA while still working there. You were a copywriter for Xerox Education Publications, the company that published my weekly reader, which anyone of my age remembers and was, I think, one of the biggest publications of its day. Why Xerox and why copywriting? Where did that come from? Well, I wanted to be a writer. I really wanted to be a journalist. And so I had a lot of journalism courses and also media courses in undergraduate school. And how I fell into copywriting, and it was the summer after college, and I was visiting my boyfriend in Connecticut, and I was sitting at the pool, and I would tell everyone that I was looking for a job. I had no job. I never had a real job other than waitressing before that. And... I went into this gentleman who said, well, you know, there's this company, Xerox Education Publications, up the road. I don't know of any jobs that are open, but why don't you give them a call? I quickly ran into the house. I called them on the phone. They asked me to send a resume in. And I said, oh, no problem. I'm really close by. I'm just going to drop it off. And so I showered, I dressed, and you know, everything really quickly, did my hair and went over and handed it to them. And I got a phone call from them within a few days. And that was it. I mean, that's how I got hired. So where did you become the marketer? Actually, it was at Xerox. I was the copywriter, and so product managers and marketing managers would come in to me and direct me, essentially, to sell their product. I went into my boss, Kathy Howes, who was my first great mentor. I said to her, you know, I don't really agree with what these people are saying. They're coming in and asking me to write things in certain ways. I'm willing to do that, but I want to know what I have to do because I want to be the person directing. And so she told me that I needed to be like a product manager or a marketing manager. I didn't even know what that really meant exactly. And I looked in the back of some trade magazines at those positions. All of the ads for these positions said MBA preferred or necessary or so forth. So I signed up for my MBA. I went to night school while I was still working there. I switched over to the marketing group. So I actually started my marketing career there. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. 
One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Jan Brandt. You go to California, you were CEO of a direct marketing agency with clients that included Greenpeace, Ted Kennedy, the California Democratic Party. You had your own company for four years in the mid-80s in Mountain View, California, and you helped start Parenting Magazine, and then you moved back east. And finally, in 1993, you were hired as Senior VP at AOL. That was about two years before I got there on the board and three years before I joined the management. Can you paint a picture of AOL in 1993? It was really the Wild West. It was a lot of really energetic, smart people. We used to call it building and flying it at the same time. And many of them not without a lot of experience and with not a lot of adult supervision. I used to look at myself as someone who was almost a transitional figure in the company in that I had worked in both small and large companies, and I thought I knew how to take from both models and try to make things work. I was able to traverse the growth, I think, a little bit better than other people 
in those early days, trying to bring some sense of process, ways of trying to mentor people and bring them along when they had been doing it on their own for a while. I was being brought in to make the company bigger. And there are a lot of things that really had to change in order to do that. We had one person in the HR department, and that was tragic. If you had a new hire coming in at night, you go into people's offices and steal trash baskets and pencils. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, was, it was really crazy. I had a lot of latitude, though. I remember we had an IT department. If my computer broke, they couldn't get it fixed right away. I didn't really care. I would just send my assistant and I'd say, you know, go to the computer store, get me a computer, and we'll figure this out later. So it's not exactly the way things were supposed to happen. But as they say now, you had to break a lot of glass. So let's advance a little bit. Some people don't remember or realize that actually AOL, along with Prodigy and CompuServe, began as proprietary computer networks. It was not the Internet. And as a matter of fact, even when I joined the board in 1995, there's still discussion about whether the Internet was friend or foe and how much it should be embraced or whether it should be embraced. Obviously, AOL jumped in with both feet, but Prodigy and CompuServe didn't. And our big mission was to make the Internet as important to consumers as their telephones and TVs. Seems like a rather quaint goal looking back on it. And in that time, Microsoft offered consumers I think it was $300 to switch to MSN from AOL. Other ISPs were free. We were charging over $20 a month. There was a new threat almost every day. I don't know about you, but I sort of didn't want to wake up in the morning to find out what was lurking there that morning. How did you keep your bearings through all that and that such rapid change, such fierce competition, and companies with much bigger balance sheets than we had coming after us every day? We had such enormous energy. We had such maniacal focus. You had to have it to be around me. I became known in the early days as the queen of no. What that meant was, no, we're not working on that. No, we're not working on that either. This is what we're working on and keeping people really, really, really focused. I've never seen a company and a group of people, especially in those earlier days, who really were trying their best to all row in the same direction or all swim in the same direction, whatever that saying is. There wasn't really a big focus on me, me, me. You know, what's my next job? What's my next salary? What's my next raise? How much stock options am I getting? There wasn't a lot of focus on that because we were so energized by what we were doing. And what I can see and I have seen over and over and over again in larger companies is that there becomes a sense of entitlement, there becomes a feeling of alienation, of not really being part of a bigger mission. We were on a mission. Of course, the stock options and the money and all that helped, but we were on a mission. It wasn't just a job for most of us. We were also incredibly nimble. The amount of nimbleness, the fact that the buck stopped here and that I could see something going on in a company threatening us and I could go, boom, you know, get this done, do this. I didn't have to go through a lot of channels and committees. People didn't get in my way. No, they didn't get in your way. I can attest to that, Jan. <laughs> Everyone was scared to death to cross you. I would say in a meeting, step aside or I'm going to run over you. It really allowed for an enormous amount of nimbleness. 
it also gave me the freedom to make mistakes and correct for them. And you can't have an environment, as many larger companies have, in which you're judged by how many mistakes you make. If you don't make mistakes, you're really not going to get anywhere big. You're going to do everything incrementally. My great mentor, Steve Ross, who built Warner Communications and Time Warner, used to tell me, Bob, you'll never be fired here for making a mistake. Here, you'll be fired for not making a mistake, because you're not making mistakes tells me you're not trying anything new, and that's our right. lifeblood. Right. I never fired anyone for making a mistake. Make the same mistake, you know, two or three times, and you, you, you know, you're going to be on thin ice. You need to hire people smarter than you and be confident. My feeling has always been, you want my job, come get it, come earn it. I have only benefited throughout my life in hiring the smartest people that I could convince to working with me. So let's jump a little bit. I want to jump to the big crisis we had. Actually, the day I joined in management off the board in 1996 to run the AOL service, Steve Case and the company announced unlimited pricing. And almost immediately, we had a crisis. Too much demand, not enough supply. Consumers were getting busy signals, couldn't get online. We were called America Offline. It was certainly the biggest business crisis of my career, other than maybe COVID right now. Can you take us back to that time, and what did you learn from it? My first feeling was, they love us. They really love us. And that faded, of course, as we dealt with the crisis. I think that we expected some blips. There was no precedence for it. We were just all then running as fast as we could. AOL was really the best example, probably over the last 20 years, of the walled garden. Despite lots of pressure, we did not interoperate with other services deliberately and strategically. If you wanted to communicate with someone on AOL, you had to join AOL. Therefore, the more people on AOL, the more people joined. It was sort of the perfect example. And you were a great defender of it. You could smell people trying to sneak around the wall or breach the wall. After my time at AOL and yours, someone opened up the walled garden. Facebook is probably the best example of the new walled garden. You think they appreciate that lesson about AOL? I think they go to great lengths to keep you on their service. When I look at Facebook, I see AOL all over. We had a lot of the services that they had. We were probably early in introducing some of them. We did have these pages where you can collect your friends, your family. It was really, you know, Facebook 0.5, not even Facebook 1.0. AOL certainly got derailed with the AOL Time Warner merger and probably if AOL had stayed an independent company, would have been the future of AOL. As you point out, many of the service developed were actually being worked on at the time. There are many, many services that I'll send a text or an email to say, we did that, but we were early and it was a different time. So let me jump a little bit as we begin to come toward the end. If you could give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Wow. Someone gave me advice when I was about 21 years old. He was a marketer. He was my boss at my first company when I moved over to the marketing department. And he said to me, the problem with you is that you want to be something. You need to want to do something. I didn't quite get what he was saying at that point, but I did a few years later and realized that really my passion was marketing. My passion was connecting with people in that way. And it was what led me, frankly, to end up at AOL. 
as opposed to, I was interviewing at other companies at that time, companies that people had actually heard of. Back then it was American Airlines, or I was interviewing at Time Inc. at the time. You know, I went to AOL because I felt that it was the best chance for me to spread my wings and to do what I was really passionate about, and I was passionate about marketing. And so I think that while I couldn't have given myself that advice, someone else did give it to me. Let's wind up today. We always end math and magic by looking at those two sides of marketing, the analytics, math, and the creative, the magic. When you look back on all you've seen, who would you give the shout-out to as the greatest math person in the marketing equation? In the brand of marketing that I was most involved in, you couldn't really separate the two. But you really couldn't have been a direct marketer without being able to do both of those things. One of the reasons I think I was so successful is because I actually am very good at both sides. Yes, you were. Let me jump to the other side then. Tell me who's the best magician. Ever? Yeah. Bill Jamie, who was a copywriter of great renown. Anyone from my era or before or even a little bit after would have known him. He was prolific, did a lot of work in publishing, and he brought magic to paper. He was very expensive to use in getting him to work on one of your projects. You had a campaign for it. So, Jan, this has been great. AOL had to be the biggest success of my career and certainly one of the most exciting rides doing it with you was inspiring. I loved being in the foxhole with you. I loved all the stories we have together. I have to thank you for all those great times, great memories. And thanks for sharing some, just a little bit of your brilliance with us today. Thanks. Well, thank you. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Jan. One, be willing to make mistakes. As Jan says, if you don't make mistakes, you're not going to get anywhere big. Two, keep it simple. When introducing a new product like AOL, consumers value simplicity and ease of use over just about anything else. Three, cost is relative. As Jan often had to explain, her marketing efforts cost the company a lot of money, but her results were spectacular and worth it. Four, to stay focused, you sometimes have to say no. In the early days of AOL, Jan harnessed the tremendous energy of the company and kept everyone focused on achieving the core mission by not allowing her team to work on things that didn't move them all in the same direction. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor, Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.